Section 11 of Institutes of the Christian Religion, Book 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Institutes of the Christian Religion, Book 3, by John Calvin. Translated by Henry Beveridge. Chapter 4, Part 2. 8. This abrogation is clearly attested in so many passages by Chrysostom, who lived at Constantinople, and was himself prelate of the church, that it is strange they can venture to maintain the contrary. Tell your sins, says he, that you may efface them. If you blush to tell another what sins you have committed, tell them daily in your soul. I say not, tell them to your fellow servant who may upbraid you, but tell them to God who cures them. Confess your sins upon your bed, that your conscience may there daily recognize its iniquities. Again, now, however, it is not necessary to confess before witnesses. Let the examination of your faults be made in your own thought. Let the judgment be without a witness. Let God alone see you confessing. Again, I do not lead you publicly into the view of your fellow servants. I do not force you to disclose your sins to men. Review and lay open your conscience before God. Show your wounds to the Lord, the best of physicians, and seek medicine from him. Show to him who upbraids not, but cures most kindly. Again, certainly tell it not to man, lest he upbraid you. Nor must you confess to your fellow servant, who may make it public. But show your wounds to the Lord, who takes care of you, who is kind and can cure. He afterwards introduces God speaking thus, I oblige you not to come into the midst of a theatre and have many witnesses. Tell your sins to me alone in private, that I may cure the ulcer. Shall we say that Chrysostom, in writing these and similar passages, carried his presumption so far as to free the consciences of men from those chains with which they are bound by the divine law? By no means. But knowing that it was not at all prescribed by the word of God, he dares not exact it as necessary. 9. But that the whole matter may be more plainly unfolded, we shall first honestly state the nature of confession as delivered in the word of God, and thereafter subjoin their inventions. Not all of them, indeed, who could drink up that boundless sea, but those only which contain summary of their secret confession. Here I am grieved to mention how frequently the old interpreter has rendered the word confess instead of praise, a fact notorious to the most illiterate, were it not fitting to expose their effrontery in transferring to their tyrannical edict 
what was written concerning the praises of God. To prove that confession has the effect of exhilarating the mind, they obtrude the passage in the psalm, with the voice of joy and praise. Psalm 42, verse 4. But if such a metamorphosis is valid, anything may be made out of anything. But, as they have lost all shame, let pious readers reflect how, by the just vengeance of God, they have been given over to a reprobate mind, that their audacity may be the more detestable. If we are disposed to acquiesce in the simple doctrine of Scripture, there will be no danger of our being misled by such glosses. There one method of confessing is prescribed. Since it is the Lord who forgives, forgets, and wipes away sins, to him let us confess them, that we may obtain pardon. He is the physician, therefore let us show our wounds to him. He is hurt and offended, let us ask peace of him. He is the discerner of the heart, and knows all one thoughts. Let us hasten to pour out our hearts before him. He it is, in fine, who invites sinners. Let us delay not to draw near to him. I acknowledge my sin unto thee, says David, and mine iniquity have I not hid. I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. Psalm 32, verse 5. Another specimen of David's confessions is as follows. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness. Psalm 51, verse 1. The following is Daniel's confession. We have sinned and have committed iniquity, and have done wickedly, and have rebelled, even by departing from thy precepts and thy judgments. Daniel chapter 9, verse 5. Other examples everywhere occur in Scripture. The quotation of them would almost fill a volume. If we confess our sins, says John, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. To whom are we to confess? To him, surely. That is, we are to fall down before him with a grieved and humbled heart, and sincerely accusing and condemning ourselves, seek forgiveness of his goodness and mercy. 10. He who has adopted this confession from the heart, and as in the presence of God, will doubtless have a tongue ready to confess whenever there is occasion among men to publish the mercy of God. He will not be satisfied to whisper the secret of his heart for once into the ear of one individual, but will often and openly, and in the hearing of the whole world, ingenuously make mention both of his own ignominy and of the greatness and glory of the Lord. In this way David, after he was accused by Nathan, being stung in his conscience, confesses his sin before God and men. I have sinned unto the Lord, says he. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13. That is, 
I have now no excuse, no evasion. All must judge me a sinner. And that which I wished to be secret with the Lord must also be made manifest to men. Hence the secret confession which is made to God is followed by voluntary confession to men, whenever that is conducive to the divine glory or our humiliation. For this reason the Lord anciently enjoined the people of Israel that they should repeat the words after the priest, and make public confession of their iniquities in the temple, because he foresaw that this was a necessary help to enable each one to form a just idea of himself. And it is proper that by confession of our misery we should manifest the mercy of our God both among ourselves and before the whole world. 11. It is proper that this mode of confession should both be ordinary in the church and also be specially employed on extraordinary occasions, when the people in common happen to have fallen into any fault. Of this latter description we have an example in the solemn confession which the whole people made under the authority and guidance of Ezra and Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. For their long captivity, the destruction of the temple, and suppression of their religion, having been the common punishment of their defection, they could not make meet acknowledgement of the blessing of deliverance without previous confession of their guilt. And it matters not, though in one assembly it may sometimes happen that a few are innocent, seeing that the members of a languid and sickly body cannot boast of soundness. Nay, it is scarcely possible that these few have not contracted some taint and so bear part of the blame. Therefore, as often as we are afflicted with pestilence or war or famine or any other calamity whatsoever, if it is our duty to retake ourselves to mourning, fasting and other signs of guiltiness, confession also on which all the others depend is not to be neglected. That ordinary confession which the Lord has moreover expressly commended, no sober man who has reflected on its usefulness will venture to disapprove. Seeing that in every sacred assembly we stand in the view of God and angels, in what way should our service begin but in acknowledging our own unworthiness? But this, you will say, is done in every prayer, for as often as we pray for pardon we confess our sins. I admit it. But if you consider how great is our carelessness, or drowsiness, or sloth, you will grant me that it would be a salutary ordinance if the Christian people were exercised in humiliation by some formal method of confession. For though the ceremony which the Lord enjoined on the Israelites belonged to the tutelage of the law, yet the thing itself belongs in some respect to us also and indeed in all well-ordered churches, in observance of a useful custom, the minister, each Lord's Day, frames a formula of confession in his own name and that of the people, in which he makes a common confession of iniquity, and supplicates pardon from the Lord. In short, by this key a door of prayer is opened privately for each, and publicly for all. 12. Two other forms of private confession are approved by Scripture. 
The one is made on our own account, and to it reference is made in the passage in James. Confess your sins one to another. James chapter 5, verse 16. For the meaning is that by disclosing our infirmities to each other, we are to obtain the aid of mutual counsel and consolation. The other is to be made for the sake of our neighbour, to appease and reconcile him, if by our fault he has been in any respect injured. In the former, although James, by not specifying any particular individual into whose bosom we are to disburden our feelings, leaves us the free choice of confessing to any member of the church who may seem fittest, Yet, as for the most part pastors are to be supposed better qualified than others, our choice ought chiefly to fall upon them. And the ground of preference is that the Lord, by calling them to the ministry, points them out as the persons by whose lips we are to be taught to subdue and correct our sins, and derive consolation from the hope of pardon. For as the duty of mutual admonition and correction is committed to all Christians, but especially enjoined on ministers, so while we ought all to console each other mutually and confirm each other in confidence in the divine mercy, we see that ministers, to assure our consciences of the forgiveness of sins, are appointed to be the witnesses and sponsors of it so that they are themselves said to forgive sins and loose souls. Matthew chapter 16, verse 19, chapter 18, verse 18. When you hear this attributed to them, reflect that it is for your use. Let every believer therefore remember that if in private he is so agonized and afflicted by a sense of his sins that he cannot obtain relief without the aid of others, it is his duty not to neglect the remedy which God provides for him, namely to have recourse for relief to a private confession to his own pastor, and for consolation, privately implore the assistance of him whose business it is, both in public and private, to solace the people of God with gospel doctrine. But we are always to use moderation, lest in a matter as to which God prescribes no certain rule, our consciences be burdened with a certain yoke. Hence it follows first that confession of this nature ought to be free, so as not to be exacted of all, but only recommended to those who feel that they have need of it. And secondly, even those who use it according to their necessity must neither be compelled by any precept, nor artfully induced to enumerate all their sins, but only in so far as they shall deem it for their interest, that they may obtain the full benefit of consolation. Faithful pastors as they would both eschew tyranny in their ministry and superstition in the people, must not only leave this liberty to churches, but defend and strenuously vindicate it. 13. Of the second form of confession, our Saviour speaks in Matthew. If thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there remember that thy brother has aught against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar. First be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 and 24. Thus love, which has been interrupted by our fault, must be restored by acknowledging and asking pardon for the fault. Under this head is included the confession of those who by their sin have given offence to the whole church. For if Christ attaches so much importance to the offence of one individual, 
that he forbids the sacrifice of all who have sinned in any respect against their brethren, until by due satisfaction they have regained their favour. How much greater reason is there that he, who by some evil example has offended the church, should be reconciled to it by the acknowledgement of his fault? Thus the member of the church of Corinth was restored to communion after he had humbly submitted to correction. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 6 this form of confession existed in the ancient Christian church, as Cyprian relates. They practice repentance, says he, for a proper time. Then they come to confession, and by the laying on of the hands of the bishop and clergy, are admitted to communion. Scripture knows nothing of any other form or method of confessing, and it belongs not to us to bind new chains upon consciences which Christ most strictly prohibits from being brought into bondage. Meanwhile, that the flock present themselves before the pastor whenever they would partake of the Holy Supper, I am so far from disapproving that I am most desirous it should be everywhere observed. For both those whose conscience is hindered may thence obtain singular benefit, and those who require admonition thus afford an opportunity for it, provided always no countenance is given to tyranny and superstition. 14. The power of the keys has place in the three following modes of confession. Either when the whole church, in a formal acknowledgement of its defects, supplicates pardon, or when a private individual, who has given public offence by some notable delinquency, testifies his repentance, or when he who from disquiet of conscience needs the aid of his minister acquaints him with his infirmity. With regard to the reparation of offence, the case is different. For though in this also provision is made for peace of conscience, yet the principal object is to suppress hatred, and reunite brethren in the bond of peace. But the benefit of which I have spoken is by no means to be despised, that we may the more willingly confess our sins. For when the whole church stands, as it were, at the bar of God, confesses her guilt, and finds her only refuge in the divine mercy. It is no common or light solace to have an ambassador of Christ present, invested with the mandate of reconciliations by whom she may hear her absolution pronounced. Here the utility of the keys is justly commended when that embassy is duly discharged with becoming order and reverence. In like manner, when he who has, as it were, become an alien from the church receives pardon, and is thus restored to brotherly unity. How great is the benefit of understanding that he is pardoned by those to whom Christ said, Whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them. John chapter 20 and verse 23. Nor is private absolution of less benefit or efficacy when asked by those who stand in need of a special remedy for their infirmity. It not seldom happens that he who hears general promises, which are intended for the whole congregation of the faithful, nevertheless remains somewhat in doubts, and is still disquieted in mind, as if his own remission were not yet obtained. Should this individual lay open the secret wound of his soul to his pastor, and hear these words of the gospel specially addressed to him, Son, be of good cheer, thy sins be forgiven thee, Matthew chapter 9, verse 2. His mind will feel secure, and escape from the trepidation with which it was previously agitated. 
But when we treat of the keys, us must always beware of dreaming of any power apart from the preaching of the gospel. This subject will be more fully explained when we come to treat of the government of the church, book 4, chapters 11 and 12. There we shall see that whatever privilege of binding and loosing Christ has bestowed on his church is annexed to the word. This is especially true with regard to the ministry of the keys, the whole power of which consists in this, that the grace of the gospel is publicly and privately sealed on the minds of believers by means of those whom the Lord has appointed. And the only method in which this can be done is by preaching. 15. What say the Roman theologians? That all persons of both sexes, so soon as they shall have reached the years of discretion, must once a year at least confess all their sins to their own priest. That the sin is not discharged unless the resolution to confess has been firmly conceived. That if this resolution is not carried into effect when an opportunity offers, there is no entrance into paradise. That the priest, moreover, has the power of the keys by which he can loose and bind the sinner because the declaration of Christ is not in vain. Whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Matthew chapter 18, verse 18. Concerning this power, however, they wage a fierce war among themselves. Some say there is only one key essentially, namely the power of binding and loosing. That knowledge, indeed, is requisite for the proper use of it, but only as an accessory, not as essentially inherent in it. Others seeing that this gave too unrestrained license, have imagined two keys, namely discernment and power. Others again, seeing that the license of priests was curbed by such restraint, have forged other keys, the authority of discerning to be used in defining, and the power to carry their sentences into execution, and to these they add knowledge as a counsellor. This binding and loosing, however, they do not venture to interpret simply, to forgive and wipe away sins, because they hear the Lord proclaiming by the prophet, I, even I am the Lord, and beside me there is no saviour. I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions. Isaiah chapter 43, verses 11 and 25. But they say, it belongs to the priest to declare who are bound or loosed, and whose sins are remitted or retained. To declare, moreover, either by confession, when he absolves and retains sins, or by sentence, when he excommunicates or admits to communion in the sacraments. Lastly, perceiving that the knot is not yet untied, because it may always be objected that persons are often undeservedly bound and loosed, and therefore not bound or loosed in heaven. As their ultimate resource, they answer, that the conferring of the keys must be taken with limitations, because Christ has promised that the sentence of the priest, properly pronounced, will be approved at his judgment seat, according as the bound or loosed asked what they merited. They say, moreover, that those keys which are conferred by bishops at ordination were given by Christ to all priests, but that the free use of them is with those only who discharge ecclesiastical functions, that with priests excommunicated or suspended, the keys themselves indeed remain, but tied and rusty. Those who speak thus may justly be deemed modest and sober compared with others, who on a new anvil have forged new keys, by which they say that the treasury of heaven is locked up. These we shall afterwards consider in their own place. Chapter 5, Section 2.
16. To each of these views I will briefly reply. As to their binding the souls of believers by their laws, whether justly or unjustly, I say nothing at present, as it will be seen at the proper place. But their enacting it as a law that all sins are to be enumerated, their denying that sin is discharged except under the condition that the resolution to confess has been firmly conceived, their pretense that there is no admission into paradise if the opportunity of confession has been neglected, are things which it is impossible to bear. Are all sins to be enumerated? But David, who I presume had honestly pondered with himself as to the confession of his sins, exclaimed, Who can understand his errors? Cleanse thou me from secret faults. Psalm 19, verse 12. And in another passage, Mine iniquities are gone over my head. As a heavy burden, they are too heavy for me. Psalm 38, verse 4. He knew how deep was the abyss of our sins, how numerous the forms of wickedness, how many heads the hydra carried, how long a tail it drew. Therefore, he did not sit down to make a catalogue, but from the depths of his distress cried unto the Lord, I am overwhelmed and buried and sore vexed. The gates of hell have encircled me. Let thy right hand deliver me from the abyss into which I am plunged and from the death which I am ready to die. Who can now think of a computation of his sins when he sees David's inability to number his? 17. By this ruinous procedure, the souls of those who were affected with some sense of God have been most cruelly racked. First they retook themselves to calculation, proceeding according to the formula given by the schoolmen, and dividing their sins into boughs, branches, twigs, and leaves. Then they weighed the qualities, quantities, and circumstances, and in this way for some time matters proceeded. But after they had advanced farther, when they looked around, naught was seen but sea and sky, no road, no harbour. The longer the space they ran over, a longer still met the eye. Nay, lofty mountains began to rise, and there seemed no hope of escape, none at least till after long wanderings. They were thus brought to a dead halt, till at length the only issue was found in despair. Here these cruel murderers, to ease the wounds which they had made, applied certain fomentations. Every one was to do his best. But new cares again disturbed, nay, new torments excruciated their souls. I have not spent enough of time. I have not exerted myself sufficiently. Many things I have omitted through negligence. Forgetfulness proceeding from want of care is not excusable. Then new drugs were supplied to alleviate their pains. Repent of your negligence, and provided it is not done supinely, it will be pardoned. All these things, however, could not heal the wound, being not so much alleviations of the sore as poison besmeared with honey, that its bitterness might not at once offend the taste, but penetrate to the vitals before it could be detected. The dreadful voice, therefore, was always heard pealing in their ears, Confess all your sins and the dread thus occasioned could not be pacified without sure consolation. Here let my readers consider whether it be possible to take an account of the actions of a whole year, or even to collect the sins committed in a single day, seeing every man's experience convinces him that at evening, in examining the faults of that single day, memory gets confused, so great is the number and variety presented. I am not speaking of dull and heartless hypocrites, who, after animadverting on three or four of their grosser offences, think the work finished. But of the true worshippers of God, 
who, after they have performed their examination, feeling themselves overwhelmed, still add the words of John, If our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart, and knoweth all things. 1 John chapter 3, verse 20 And therefore tremble at the thought of that judge, whose knowledge far surpasses our comprehension. 18. Though a good part of the world rested in these soothing suggestions, by which this fatal poison was somewhat tempered, it was not because they thought that God was satisfied, or they had quite satisfied themselves. It was rather like an anchor cast out in the middle of the deep, which for a little interrupts the navigation, or a weary, worn-out traveller who lies down by the way. I give myself no trouble in proving the truth of this fact. Everyone can be his own witness. I will mention generally what the nature of this law is. First, the observance of it is simply impossible, and hence its only results to destroy, condemn, confound, to plunge into ruin and despair. Secondly, by withdrawing sinners from a true sense of their sins, it makes them hypocritical and ignorant both of God and themselves. For while they are wholly occupied with the enumeration of their sins, they lose sight of that lurking hydra, their secret iniquities and internal defilements, the knowledge of which would have made them sensible of their misery. But the surest rule of confession is to acknowledge and confess our sins to be an abyss so great as to exceed our comprehension. On this rule we see the confession of the publican was formed. God be merciful to me, a sinner. Luke chapter 18, verse 13. As if he had said, how great, how very great a sinner, how utterly sinful I am, the extent of my sins I can neither conceive nor express. Let the depth of thy mercy engulf the depth of sin. What, you will say, are we not to confess every single sin? Is no confession acceptable to God but that which is contained in the words, I am a sinner? Nay, our endeavour must rather be, as much as in us lies, to pour out our whole heart before the Lord. Nor are we only in one word to confess ourselves sinners, but truly and sincerely acknowledge ourselves as such. To feel with our whole soul how great and various the pollutions of our sin are. Confessing not only that we are impure, but what the nature of our impurity is, its magnitude and its extent. Not only that we are debtors, but what the debts are which burden us, and how they were incurred. Not only that we are wounded, but how numerous and deadly are the wounds. When thus recognising himself, the sinner shall have poured out his whole heart before God. Let him seriously and sincerely reflect that a greater number of sins still remains, and that their recesses are too deep for him thoroughly to penetrate. Accordingly, let him exclaim with David, Who can understand his errors? Cleanse thou me from secret faults. Psalm 19, verse 12. But when the schoolmen affirm that sins are not forgiven, unless the resolution to confess has been firmly conceived, and that the gate of paradise is closed on him who has neglected the opportunity of confessing when offered. Far be it from us to concede this to them. The remission of sins is not different now from what it has ever been. In all the passages in which we read that sinners obtained forgiveness from God, we read not that they whispered into the ear of some priest. Indeed, they could not then confess, as priests were not then confessionaries, nor did the confessional itself exist. And for many ages afterwards, this mode of confession by which sins were forgiven on this condition was unheard of. But not to enter into a long discussion as if the matter were doubtful, the word of God which abideth forever is plain. When the wicked shall turn away from all his sins that he has committed, 
and keep all my statutes, and do that which is lawful and right, he shall surely live, he shall not die. Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 21. He who presumes to add to this declaration binds not sins, but the mercy of God. When they contend that judgment cannot be given unless the case is known, the answer is easy, that they usurp the right of judging, being only self-created judges. And it is strange how confidently they lay down principles which no man of sound mind will admit. They give out that the office of binding and loosing has been committed to them as a kind of jurisdiction annexed to the right of inquiry, that the jurisdiction was unknown to the apostles their whole doctrine proclaims. Nor does it belong to the priest to know for certainty whether or not a sinner is loosed, but to him from whom acquittal is asked, since he who only hears can ever know whether or not the enumeration is full and complete. Thus there would be no absolution without restricting it to the words of him who is to be judged. We may add that the whole system of loosing depends on faith and repentance, two things which no man can know of another, so as to pronounce sentence. It follows, therefore, that the certainty of binding and loosing is not subjected to the will of an earthly judge, because the minister of the word, when he duly executes his office, can only acquit conditionally, when, for the sake of the sinner, he repeats the words, Whosoever sins ye remit, lest he should doubt of the pardon, which, by the command and voice of God, is promised to be ratified in heaven. 19. It is not strange, therefore, that we condemn that auricular confession as a thing pestilent in its nature, and in many ways injurious to the church, and desire to see it abolished. But if the thing were in itself indifferent, yet, seeing it is of no use or benefit, and has given occasion to so much impiety, blasphemy, and error, who does not think that it ought to be immediately abolished? They enumerate some of its uses, and boast of them as very beneficial, but they are either fictitious or of no importance. One thing they specially commend, that the blush of shame in the penitent is a severe punishment, which makes him more cautious for the future, and anticipates divine punishment by his punishing himself. As if a man was not sufficiently humbled with shame when brought under the cognizance of God at his supreme tribunal. Admirable proficiency, if we cease to sin because we are ashamed to make one man acquainted with it, and blush not at having God as the witness of our evil conscience. The assertion, however, as to the effect of shame is most unfounded, for we may everywhere see that there is nothing which gives men greater confidence and license in sinning than the idea that after making confession to priests they can wipe their lip and say, I have not done it. And not only do they during the whole year become bolder in sin, but secure against confession for the remainder of it. They never sigh after God, never examine themselves, but continue heaping sins upon sins, until, as they suppose, they get rid of them all at once. And when they have got rid of them, they think they are disburdened of their load, and imagine they have deprived God of the right of judging by giving it to the priest, have made God forgetful by making the priest conscious. Moreover, who is glad when he sees a day of confession approaching? Who goes with a cheerful mind to confess, and does not rather, as if he were dragged to prison with a rope about his neck, go unwillingly, and as it were struggling against it, with the exception perhaps of the priests themselves, who take a fond delight in the mutual narrative of their own misdeeds, as a kind of merry tales?
I will not pollute my page by retailing the monstrous abominations with which auricular confession teems. I only say that if that holy man, Nectarius, did not act unadvisedly, when for one rumour of whoredom he banished confession from his church, or rather from the memory of his people, the innumerable acts of prostitution, adultery, and incest, which it produces in the present day, warn us of the necessity of abolishing it. 20. As to the pretense of the confessionaries respecting the power of the keys, and their placing in it, so to speak, the sum and substance of their kingdom, we must see what force it ought to have. Were the keys then, they ask, given without a cause? Was it said without a cause, whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven? Matthew chapter 18, verse 18. Do we make void the word of Christ? I answer that there was a weighty reason for giving the keys, as I lately explained, and will again show at greater length when I come to treat of excommunication, book 4, chapter 12. But what if I should cut off the handle for all such questions with one sword, namely that priests are neither vicars nor successors of the apostles? But that also will be elsewhere considered. Book 4, chapter 6. Now, at the very place where they are most desirous to fortify themselves, they erect a battering ram, by which all their own machinations are overthrown. Christ did not give his apostles the power of binding and loosing before he endued them with the Holy Spirit. I deny, therefore, that any man who has not previously received the Holy Spirit is competent to possess the power of the keys. I deny that any one can use the keys unless the Holy Spirit proceed, teaching and dictating what is to be done. They pretend, indeed, that they have the Holy Spirit, but by their works deny him, unless, indeed, we are to suppose that the Holy Spirit is some vain thing of no value, as they certainly do feign, but we will not believe them. With this engine, they are completely overthrown. Whatever be the door of which they boast of having the key, we must always ask whether they have the Holy Spirit, who is arbiter and ruler of the keys. If they reply that they have, we must again ask whether the Holy Spirit can err. This they will not venture to say distinctly, although by their doctrine they indirectly insinuate it. Therefore we must infer that no priestlings have the power of the keys, because they everywhere and indiscriminately loose what the Lord was pleased should be bound, and bind what he has ordered to be loosed. End of section 11